0: Questions for Sex Eradicationists, Lawmakers, and School Leaders The Radical Equality Act, the pet project of sex eradicationists, also known as transcultists, is now in the U.S. Senate. The act would force the federal government to treat the nonsensical notion that spirit humans can be trapped in the wrong material bodies, as if those disordered feelings constitute a reality equivalent to biological sex and one about which no one may make judgments. In other words, the Equality Act would enshrine in federal law a Gnostic superstition. In addition, when the purported rights of cross-sex impersonators clash with First Amendment protection of the free exercise of religion, the Equality Act says cross-sex impersonation wins. bye bye Christian colleges whose students get federal aid! Bye bye, Christian adoption agencies that partner with the government. Bye bye, religious liberty. It was nice knowing you these past glorious 230 years. If passed, trans cultists will be well over halfway to their goal of eradicating all public recognition of biological sex. There are many reasons we've arrived at this insane, reality denying, wrong side of history moment including the fact that citizens are not demanding their elected leaders dialogue on and debate the sandy foundation on which the trans cult is built. In the hope that sane people on the political right and left will start demanding such conversations, here is a list of questions that every lawmaker, school administrator, and school board member should have to answer. 1. If sex and gender are two wholly different and unrelated things, with sex being an immutable objective phenomenon and gender being a subjective internal and sometimes fluid phenomenon, why should restrooms, locker rooms, shelters, prisons, nursing home rooms, and semi-private hospital rooms correspond to gender identity as opposed to biological sex, which is both objective and stable? Two, why is it legitimate for girls to oppose sharing restrooms and locker rooms with objectively male peers who accept their sex, that is, what the left calls cisgender boys, but it's not legitimate for girls to oppose sharing restrooms and locker rooms with objectively male peers who reject their sex, that is, trans girls? Why should a boy's subjective feelings about his objective sex affect girls' feelings or beliefs about undressing or going to the bathroom in front of or near him. Number three, either biological sex has meaning relative to feelings of modesty and the desire for privacy when undressing or engaging in intimate personal activities, or it has no meaning relative to modesty and privacy. If biological sex has no meaning relative to modesty and privacy, why do we have any sex-segregated restrooms or locker rooms anywhere? Why not make all of them coed or sex-integrated for everyone? If, however, the desire of humans to be segregated from unrelated persons of the opposite sex when undressing, showering, or going to the bathroom is natural, understandable, reasonable, and good— Why should some opposite-sex persons be allowed to violate those spaces just because they don't like their sex? Number four, if cross-sex-identifying students should not be required to use restrooms and locker rooms with those whose gender identity they don't share, why should other students be required to use facilities with those whose sex they don't share? Why should gender dysphoric boys or men be able to use restrooms with only women, but actual girls, biological girls or women, are prohibited from being able to use restrooms with only women. Number five, if anatomy is irrelevant to both gender identity and privacy, should boys who identify as girls be allowed to shower with objectively female peers or undress in open areas of girls' locker rooms? If not, why not? If it's unjustly discriminatory to prohibit gender dysphoric boys from using girls' locker rooms, as leftists claim it is, then why isn't it unjustly discriminatory to prohibit gender dysphoric boys from showering with girls or changing out in the open in girls' locker rooms, as some schools do? That is, they prohibit that. Number six. Female teachers and coaches are allowed in girls' restrooms and locker rooms. Should objectively male teachers and coaches who identify as female be allowed in girls' restrooms and locker rooms as well? If not, why not? Number seven, will school administrations allow those who identify as gender fluid to choose daily which restrooms and locker rooms they will use? If not, why not? Number eight, Should other subjective internal feelings be reflected in policy and practice? For example, should those who identify as amputees, that is, those with body integrity identity disorder, be allowed to use wheelchairs and handicapped parking spots at school? Should they be allowed to leave class early to have more time to get from one class to another? Number nine, is it unnatural or pathological for girls or boys to object to engaging in excretory functions in a stall next to an unrelated person of the opposite sex doing likewise? If not, if it's not pathological or unnatural, should schools respect and honor those feelings through policy that prohibits co-ed restrooms? Number 10, those who identify as trans claim their biological sex as revealed in anatomy is unrelated and irrelevant to their gender identity, which is a subjective internal feeling. They also claim that anatomy doesn't matter when it comes to restrooms, changing areas, and showers. They further claim they want to use restrooms with only those whose gender identity they share. So, why do boys who identify as girls demand to use girls' restrooms and locker rooms? How do they know the males using the boys' restrooms do not internally identify as girls? And how can they be sure that the females using the girls' restrooms do identify as girls? Is it possible that boys who identify as girls are basing their restroom choices on biological sex, that is, the female sex, as revealed in anatomy? If so... Why are they permitted to do so, but actual, objectively female girls are not? Number 11. If it's not hateful for gender dysphoric biological boys to say they want to share private facilities with only biological females, why is it considered hateful for biological females to say they want to share restrooms and locker rooms with only biological females? 12. 12. Why is it hateful to believe that locker rooms and restrooms should correspond to one's objective sex, but loving to believe they should correspond to subjective feelings about one's sex? 13. Do children and adults have an inalienable intrinsic right not to share restrooms and locker rooms with persons of the opposite sex? 14. If restroom stalls and separate changing areas, cubicles, provide sufficient privacy to allow students to use facilities with those whose sex they don't share, then why don't restroom stalls and separate changing cubicles provide sufficient privacy for a gender dysphoric student to share facilities with those whose gender identity they allegedly don't share, but whose sex they do share? Fifteen. Leftists argue that the word sex in Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 actually includes gender identity, thereby prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity in restrooms and locker rooms. If gender dysphoric boys or men are permitted in girls' or women's restrooms and locker rooms based on this interpretation or this reinterpretation, on what basis could other boys or men be prohibited from using women's restrooms? Cisgender boys or men couldn't be prohibited from using girls' or women's restrooms based on their male sex because other objectively male persons, that is, those who are male but identify as women, would already have been allowed in. And wouldn't prohibiting cisgender boys or men from using women's private spaces based on their identification as males constitute discrimination based on gender identity? 16. Leftists argue that separate restrooms and locker rooms for boys and girls are equivalent to separate drinking fountains for blacks and whites. Others would counter that while there are no substantive ontological differences between whites and blacks, and that there are no differences that bear on drinking water at fountains, there are substantive differences between men and women. In fact, even homosexuals acknowledge that men and women are fundamentally and significantly different when they say they are romantically and erotically attracted to only persons of their same sex. Further, conservatives argue that the differences between men and women bear directly on the use of spaces in which private activities related to physical embodiment are engaged in. It is these important differences related to physical embodiment as male or female that account for the very existence of separate restrooms, locker rooms, shelters, and semi-private hospital rooms for men and women everywhere. If, however, separate restrooms and locker rooms for men and women are akin to separate drinking fountains for blacks and whites, as leftists claim they are, are leftists in favor of banning them everywhere? 17. If separate restrooms and locker rooms for gender dysphoric boys and girls are equivalent to separate restrooms and locker rooms for blacks and whites, as former Attorney General Loretta Lynch once claimed, then why aren't separate restrooms and locker rooms for cisgender boys and girls equivalent to racism? And why aren't separate restrooms and locker rooms for gender dysphoric boys and cis boys equivalent to racism? 18. When sex segregation abolitionists accuse parents who oppose co-ed restrooms and locker rooms of being hateful, intolerant, bigoted, ignorant, heartless bullies, do they also smear children who object to sharing restrooms and locker rooms with peers of the opposite sex? 19. Do school administrators, teachers, and community members think that Muslims and Orthodox Jews who don't want their daughters sharing restrooms and locker rooms with objectively male students or vice versa are ignorant, bigoted, hateful, and unjustly discriminatory? 20. Pronouns denote and correspond to objective biological sex, not subjective internal feelings about one's sex. So... If staff members, teachers, or administrators, or students view the use of opposite-sex pronouns to refer to gender dysphoric students as lying, and for ethical and or religious reasons they object to lying, should schools accommodate their objections, or should schools, which are arms of the government, compel employees to lie? Twenty-one. Liberal sex and gender researchers, J. Michael Bailey at Northwestern University and Dr. Eric Villain at UCLA, write that 80% of gender dysphoric boys, and most gender dysphoric persons are male, will accept their real sex by adulthood. They claim that, quote, it looks like parental acquiescence leads to persistence, end quote. In other words, if parents accommodate their children's efforts to pretend to be the opposite sex, their children are more likely to persist in their rejection of their sex. So, are schools that allow gender dysphoric minors to use opposite sex restrooms and locker rooms complicit in helping students persist in their rejection of their sex? 22. If there is a mismatch between a person's sex and his feelings about his sex, how can progressives be certain that the error resides in the healthy body rather than the mind. If a person has normal, unambiguous, healthy, fully functioning male anatomy, but desires to be or believes he is female, might this not be an error or disorder of his mind? 23. If a man identifies as bi-gender and has appended faux breasts to his chest while retaining his penis and testes, as many cross-sex identifiers do, should he be able to walk about unclothed in women's locker rooms? 24. Progressives routinely ask opponents of co-ed restrooms and locker rooms whether single-sex restrooms and locker rooms will require genitalia police to determine whether those seeking ingress are in reality the sex that corresponds to the spaces they seek to use. Well, will co-ed restrooms and locker rooms require gender identity police to determine whether those seeking ingress are either the sex that corresponds to the spaces they seek to use or have proof that they have been diagnosed as gender dysphoric? If not, how will we know if the persons seeking access to women's restrooms are gender dysphoric men masquerading as women or are male predators masquerading as gender dysphoric men? 25. Some argue that men masquerading as women have been successfully using women's private spaces for years without women knowing, and hence, no harm, no foul. This suggests that if women's privacy is invaded by men, but they, the women, are unaware of the invasion, no harm has been done. By that logic, if voyeurs, not to be confused with men who identify as women, but if voyeurs are able to secretly view women without women's knowledge, have women been harmed or not? 26. What is gender identity? If it's defined as subjective internal feelings about one's sex or about one's maleness or femaleness, On what basis do trans-identifying children determine their gender identity? Do they base their belief that they are the sex they are not or their desire to be the sex they aren't on sex stereotypes, like which toys they like to play with? If so, is it arbitrary socially imposed sex stereotypes that determine maleness or femaleness? Or do biology and anatomy determine maleness or femaleness? 27. When law enforcement agencies collect and disseminate information on crime, should crimes committed by biological men who pretend to be women be recorded as acts committed by men or by women? 28. Should government contracts allocated for women business owners be awarded to biological women only or also to biological men who identify as women? And last question. How will biomedical research into health issues that affect primarily women or primarily men be affected when the recognition of sexual differentiation is prohibited? My hope is that these questions might help jumpstart a spirited conversation and perhaps help eradicate the pernicious and absurd trans ideology.